into that again in a while. But let me read now from Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death, before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we, we have heard Your Word, Your perfect, inspired, authoritative, and all-sufficient Word. These are the words that we are to live by, that come from the mouth of of God. These are the words that Jesus instructed us that we have to live by. They are your words. And I simply ask this morning that whatever words I will use to expound on the passage of scripture we just heard, it would be you through the truth of your word that would speak to every heart that hears this sermon and if anything that I say is misleading or unintentionally unclear or off I ask that you would forgive and make it be forgotten quickly and I ask that you would cause me to faithfully preach the word that you would instruct my mind and my heart at this time that I would simply be a servant of the word Serving the bread of life, which can only be taken in by faith in your word. I thank you that you are so patient with us, that you are so kind to us, that you would speak to us in ways that we understand, that you would communicate to us, and even through blindness because of sin, you would use this very same word to to open our eyes to see the truth about Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has come to do, so that we might see and savor the goodness of God and, and that we would be saved by that kind of believing sight. 
So I ask that you would open our eyes this morning. Someone perhaps for the first time. Others of us just a little bit more. Perhaps our eyes are, are dim, are tired, are filled with other things that we have had to look at throughout the week or even this morning. Would you remove the distractions, please, from our minds so we could focus properly on your word? We thank you that you have shown your love above and beyond everything that we are going through. You have shown your great love by sending Jesus to, to live for us, to achieve a righteousness in his humanity that none of us can, to die as a substitute, taking the wrath of God on himself that we deserve to be experiencing even now, and proving that this sacrifice was the only acceptable sacrifice to accomplish forgiveness of sin and life everlasting to those who believe proving that you accepted him and his sacrifice by rising again on the third day. And we thank you that he has also ascended and is reigning from your right hand. We thank you that Jesus saves as we sung earlier. We thank you that Jesus reigns and we thank you that he reigns in the hearts of his people. Those who he has defined as the church in this very passage that we are looking at. And so again I ask that you would use your word to bring salvation to others and for those of us who came in here or who tuned in to this message already as Christians that you would use this word to build up your church all the more to equip us for the ministry that all of us are called to that we would be disciple makers and good disciples we ask that you would do these things for your own honor, your own glory, and for the good of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who might have walked in, if anyone came in or tuned in while I was praying just now, just so you know, we're reading Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. And you can find that on the Pew Bibles on page 600 and. 94. I've entitled this sermon, The Narrow Road to Glory. Jesus used that language, um, speaking about what it's like to follow him. All the way back, we found in, in Matthew chapter 7, when he was teaching from that Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. He said that the way is narrow, and the, 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 the gate is narrow the way is hard that leads to eternal life and so i think he picks up on this theme again in a portion of this passage show that the narrow road to glory and there's four points that i want us to see from this text mainly four points the first one is this the price of salvation the price of our salvation secondly i want to show you and i want us to see and embrace that the path of faithfulness in light of this salvation and its cost. So the price of salvation, the path of faithfulness. Thirdly, the promise of reward and judgment. And fourthly, the present and soon coming kingdom. As some theologians have put it, the kingdom of God is, in, in reality, it's already, but not yet. 
There's a, there's a coming fulfillment of it. So the present and soon coming kingdom. Let's, let's consider this first point then, the price of salvation. Look with me at verse 21, if you would. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. And just pause there. From that time on, those four words, they're marking for us a, a transition. Remember, I've, I've said it and we've seen it before. The main area of Jesus' ministry was around the Sea of, of Galilee. It was a, a Galilean ministry for the most part. But now he's, he's as, as one gospel puts it, he's setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He's fixed now on the, the high point, the ultimate point of his ministry. And so this is going to be repeated, the, the next words that come in this verse, another three times, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. He must die. He must be killed. And on the third day, be raised. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he's teaching about the reality of the resurrection, he says, I, I de delivered to you what I received, that Jesus Christ was um, crucified and he was raised again, and everything he did was in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Jesus, in these, these lines here, in these words of verse 21, is showing us that there's a transition in his ministry. He's now going from the Galilean area towards Jerusalem. Again, this comes in the context of Peter having made a true confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The verses that precede these verses, before verse 21, you see that Jesus had asked them also, who do people say that I am? If we were to ask that question, to the whole of the Cayman Islands, who is Jesus? You will actually get um, a lot more answers than what you saw Peter and respond on behalf of the disciples. The responses that Peter gave as to who people said that Jesus was were actually not too far from the truth. Some of them were partial. At least one of them was a, was a partial truth. But this is the ultimate question. When the moment comes for us to close our eyes in death nothing that we have done in this life will matter apart from that question who do you say Jesus is and of course how have you responded to that truth and so Peter against all the other opinions against every single world view that existed outside of the truth of Jesus Peter makes this confession and it's after Peter makes this confession that Jesus begins to give a little bit more insight. Okay, Peter, now, now you've spoken on behalf of the disciples. Now let me explain to you what the Christ has come to do. And so, he wants his disciples, just like he wants us today, to understand something important. He wants us to understand that his mission was not to do what the popular opinion of the Jews in that day and some of us perhaps today would think. He hasn't come to set up 
a glorious kingdom on earth now that will never be shaken again because he is coming at an unknown time to judge the living and the dead all the elements as Peter says in his second letter all the elements of creation will be destroyed and he will make a new heaven and a new earth but you see Peter and the disciples were being instructed by the common Jewish mentality of the day Peter also was kind of hoping that well I got the confession right I'm on the right team. And so whenever this conquest begins and the, the Romans and the other oppressors are overthrown, I'll be on the safe side. But Jesus wants Peter and his disciples to understand something serious must happen before I set up my kingdom. Because to be in the eternal kingdom of God, we have to first be made right with God. And there's nothing that we can bring to the table to help with that. Look at the words again of verse 21. That he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised from the dead. The way is hard. It is filled with trials and tribulations, especially for Jesus, but also for us. He promises that our faithfulness most of the time will actually result in us being persecuted or ostracized or at least not well received if we are believing in this true Christ and this true gospel. But Jesus knows that there's no other way that God can bring people into his kingdom apart from their sins being paid for. That is again why he uses this word must, not might, he doesn't say, I think I might go to Jerusalem, but we'll see what works out and maybe I have a plan B. He doesn't say, I might have to die. There's a possibility. He says, this must happen. Perhaps you remember reading in the Garden of Gethsemane what took place. Before Jesus was crucified, he was praying to the Father. And he says these words, Father, if there is any other way to accomplish this salvation. If, there, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the loud silence that we are essentially given in response to that question, which is different than the voice of God at the baptism or in the transfiguration, which we'll see in the next chapter, when he says, this is my beloved son. The silence is, a, is an answer that says, there is no other way. This shows us the seriousness of our state, our soul, our spiritual state before a holy God. The, 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 the frightening reality of our sin. And so Jesus begins by, by showing the price of salvation to his disciples before he even gives them any instructions, further instructions about what to do. So we see the price of salvation. Jesus touches on it somewhat there. But second of all, we see the path of faithfulness. Uh, look with me at verses 22 through 26. Notice how Peter responds. Peter takes Jesus aside. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is rebuking 
the Lord of glory, his master, his Lord. And he says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Remember, Jesus just commended Peter. Peter just made the great confession, that exclusive claim that Jesus is the only Messiah. He's the chosen, anointed king of God's kingdom. Jesus commends him and says, you are right for saying this, and this is the the truth that I'm going to build my church on. Ecclesia, the gathered ones, those of us who gather together as often as possible for the purpose of worshiping this king. He says, I'm going to build my church. And he uses the word rock to speak of a solid foundation. But notice what he says, Peter, now that you're speaking like this, you are more like a stumbling block to me. And he says, get behind me, Satan. There's different ways that people really interpret that, uh, that verse. But I think, it is, I think it's faithful to say that while Peter was not possessed by Satan, what was taking place was that he was influenced by a, a wrong, and I would say satanic mentality, an evil mentality. Jesus had just told him, this is what I have to do. Peter responds and says, no, you're not going to do it. Any response to God's revealed will about what he is going to do that does not say, yes, Lord, is a satanic response. But here's the, here's the kicker. How do we often respond to God's revealed will for our lives? find ourselves in hard situations at work in a relationship or a lack of relationship I'll let you make the rest of that list don't we often respond in an ungodly way say things like well Lord if you would only change this or make this work differently well then I would truly follow you we, we almost act as if we have some good suggestions for God. Hey God, I think you could add this to your agenda and then it'll work out better. Anything like that, it's just like the Satan, the satanic uh, temptation that first took place in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? There was something in Peter's mind, again, it might have been, it might have been the fact that he was trained to think that when the Messiah comes, he would set up shop then and now. In the, in the then and now, forever. And so Peter recognizes a few things. And I think in God's infinite wisdom, we have once again in Peter, another example of how we all naturally respond to various trials and tribulations. Even the idea of trials and tribulations. And you see, Peter understands something clearly. He understands that if this is the master who they're following, and if that's what he's going to go through, well then, following him will result in some serious problems for them too. And this has been the case ever since Jesus walked this earth. 
those who will commit themselves to truly following Christ, we will face opposition. It's a promise. In this life, we will face what Jesus defines as a cross. That's why he goes on to talk about taking up our cross and following him. Peter didn't want to suffer. He didn't want it to be wrong that the Messiah would set up the kingdom. And like some false teachers in our day, he only had bad teachers to listen to, to instruct him about what he should really expect in following Jesus. And so Jesus says, don't allow your mind to be shaped in such a way that you respond like this to what God reveals about his plan. See, God doesn't often reveal his plan to us. He reveals his will very clearly in his word. But he doesn't reveal the whole plan. And we struggle with that. Sometimes we use the word will and plan interchangeably, but they're two different things. It is the will of the Lord that we give thanks in every situation. We don't have to be thankful for pain, but we can still learn to say what Job said, at least to some degree. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as some of you know far more than I do, it is hard to say that when you lose a spouse or child or a parent or maybe you're more recently dealing with that kind of pain. But notice what Jesus says at the end of, this ver- of the last verse there. It says, things of God. You have in mind, see there, in your mind, the things, not the things of God, but the things of men. And this shows us, again, that God who has revealed his mind and his will in his word has done so so that we would have the things of God in our minds by being faithful to his word. This is an important lesson for us. Christian faithfulness in any circumstance in life can only be faithfulness to God's word. It's the same as saying biblical faithfulness in a sense. Most of the answers that we want to questions that we ask are actually in God's word. And we see that Peter does not want to deal with this suffering. And then Jesus, after rebuking Peter in a very strong sense, says, now listen, you are already following me, but if you want to come after me, I've now told you about my road of suffering. Now you must count the cost. He says, if, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and, and follow me. Again, the cross was an image that would represent, especially in the Jewish mind, the grossest type of suffering imaginable. Shame. Suffering. There's a passage of scripture in the Old Testament that said, Cursed is anyone. Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. That was one of the ways that the kings in the old days used to basically shame their enemies when they would win. They would hang them, sometimes still alive, but very often dead after they had been conquered. They would hang them on a tree. And so this evil and disgusting form of death was created. This crucifixion came into being. And when you read the the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians 3.13, he says, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He received that cup of wrath that he was praying about. And he's taken the sin and the shame upon himself so that we can be free of this guilt. Because he has been treated as if he himself were guilty. But Jesus doesn't say take up your hammock or your lounge chair. Right? He doesn't say take up your um, retirement package. He says take up your cross. And anything that you find that is a, is a form of suffering and trial and tribulation. Anything we find that would fit into that sort of category. Is essentially that's what our cross is to bear. And there's a difference between Peter now and Peter after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Who preaches this sermon that, that God uses to basically save 3,000 souls. There's a big difference. And we're on that same side of the difference. Those of us who are believers today. And so again, we must seek to shape our minds by these truths that God is sovereign. God is in control of what's taking place in our world. Even the measure of control that he permits Satan to run with is a part of his ultimate plan. And so if we stand with him, we are standing on solid ground. We must remember so that we respond to our suffering and our trials and our cross with the right kind of attitude. And Jesus goes on to use the language in these verses of investment and returns and gains. Again, he wants us essentially just to count the cost. He doesn't want us to give instructions to, well, to, to be instructed or to give instructions to anyone, even our children in a way that hides the hardship of following Christ. And for us here in the Cayman Islands, this is going to become more of a reality very fast. We may have been in a, a time where we could freely gather, which we are still doing today, praise God, where we can have our Sunday schools, where we can have VBS, and where it was even respected to be faithful to the Word of God, at least permitted and put up with. I have a news flash that we all should see by now. That time is gone. And while there may be different perspectives, I will give you what I think is the case. That time will never come back. No matter what we do, pray or say. And so what we have to do is the same thing Jesus is telling Peter to do. We have to count the cost and his other disciples. We have to count the cost and even if it means losing a job, which apparently a few, at least young women that I've heard about have recently done. They decided they didn't want to participate in certain training that was what they thought was against their Christian views and they don't have a job. That's counting the cost. It's not easy to live in this world it's not easy to live in Cayman, especially when you have the bills to pay or maybe a mortgage on top of that. But when we're faced with whatever challenges come our way, we have to count the cost and say, Lord, I trust you. You put me in this situation. You will provide. And you have put people around me 
that will help me to make it through to the next phase of life. I will stand firm on your word. Faithfulness is the faithfulness to the word of God. We've got to be clear about this though. The difference between Jesus' faithfulness is ours. And, and our faithfulness is this. Jesus' faithfulness was perfect. First of all. Second, through his faithfulness, he accomplishes salvation. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, he's going to accomplish, he has now accomplished salvation. Our faithfulness cannot do that. Our faithfulness can bear witness to the truth that we either believe or don't believe this gospel message. It does bear witness. It is the way we are light and salt in the world by standing firm on the word of God. And this can be very difficult. As I mentioned, it might mean the loss of a relationship. Someone might have entered into marriage as a non-Christian. And one of the spouses becomes a Christian. And the other one wants nothing to do with it. And perhaps ends up deciding to divorce. Or something hard like that. How will we respond to situations like that? God will bless our faithfulness. We can trust in that. That is why I think Jesus goes on in verse 27. Also to speak of his second coming. Of his final coming. He says take up your cross and follow me. And then he goes on to say. The son of man. His favorite title. From Daniel 7. Where Daniel has that vision. And says I saw a man. Someone that looked like the son of man. Who is approaching the the throne. the, The ancient of days. And he describes him in the same way. That revelation describes the risen Christ. And he says he received an eternal kingdom. The same thing that Samuel told David. That one day there will be one who sits on your throne. And has an everlasting kingdom. And that person is given this title. The son of man. And Jesus says that that's who he is. And he says listen. I'm going to go and suffer. And die and be raised. But guess what else I'm going to do. The son of man is going to come. In his father's glory. With his angels. And then he will reward each person. According to what he has done. Again, this shows us the, the, the divine nature of Christ. All throughout Old Testament scripture. Thousands of years of inspired writings and revelation about who God is. We are told God does not share his glory with anyone. So for Jesus to utter these words, I am going to come in my Father's glory. He's making it clear that he has a unique relationship with the father he is the unique son as john 3:16 says god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son the unique one his eternal son uncreated one with god the father and god the spirit in his essence and in his being but distinct in personhood the only one who has taken on flesh to live for us. 
to die for us and to rise again and to return at a specific date that we don't need to know. You know when you go shopping and you look on the back of your items and you want to make sure that it's not out of date? Um, well, this creation, it has an expiration date. But we don't know what it is, but we know who brings it. It is this one named the Son of Man. And then he says, everything you do in the name of Jesus Christ, everything you do is not in vain. There's a modern uh, hymn, What You Do for Jesus Christ is Not in Vain. It's a beautiful hymn. It says, he will, he will reward you in the end. What you do for Jesus Christ is not in vain, brothers and sisters. What we do, even if it's unseen to everyone, it's not unseen to God. Our faithfulness will be rewarded. And this is what he's talking about. We don't want to mix this up. This is not saying you will be saved. Jesus will not turn and contradict himself. He's not saying you're going to be saved by your works. He's saying those of you who have taken up your cross and followed me, who are trusting in me as the true king of kings, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, your faithful following will be rewarded. And there's a flip side to that coin. Those of you who hear my voice this morning, those of you who have heard the word of God, who have heard the gospel, who have chosen and continue to choose to not commit your life to him, to not repent and be believe in him as Lord and Savior, you will not receive rewards, but from the same Christ. In one hand, he will, in a sense, dispense rewards and with the other he will execute judgment eternally on any who do not receive him remember that Jesus told his disciples already in this gospel account anyone who is not with me is against me this puts the pressure in a sense on those of us who believe the gospel right now this means that all of our family and friends who don't believe the gospel, even if they're the sweetest, best citizens the world has ever seen, they're not with him, so they're against him. They must be born again. And they must follow him and take up their cross and live this faithful life of Christian discipleship. Or they will be judged eternally maybe you're here this morning or you're tuning in somehow and you're thinking about these things God is not mocked in the same way that I want to comfort the believer who's struggling to be faithful you will be rewarded to the believer to the believer he will not give you more than you can bear he will always be with us he says in the great commission and the, the end of this gospel I will never I will be with you always to the very end of the age he's with us but to those who do not trust in him he remains your judge and you don't want to take your last breath like that because there's no forgiveness after that forgiveness is not an automatic deal Jesus has accomplished 
the means of forgiveness and of being made new, being saved to the uttermost, all who come to Him. But it is for those who come to Him. So come to Him today if you have not. Speak to myself, speak to one of the elders, speak to someone you know who's a Christian. Take this seriously. We are not guaranteed another moment. We see the promise of reward and judgment in these words. The Lord Jesus is going to come. He, he was put on trial, a, a mock trial, before he was crucified. And the high priest that year asked him some questions. And one of them was basically, are you the Christ or not? We hear people saying this. And he says similar words there. He says, yes. Matthew 26, verse 64. It is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, or the Majesty on high, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Think about that. There is coming a point where the same way that we look up and we see the clouds, and we think about whatever we think about, there's going to be a moment in the blink of an eye, like, like, like lightning flashing across the sky from the east to the west, Every eye will see him coming in the clouds in glory beyond what this world has ever displayed. Amen. What a moment that will be. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in that passage where Paul says that in Philippians, he's not saying that everyone will worship him. There will be knees bowing in worship and, and adoration and thanksgiving. Some knees will essentially be basically broken to the ground because you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of glory. In less than a week, there will be a little coronation taking place in England. Not like this one. Kings of old and kings today and prime ministers and premiers will go down the street in their motorcades and will rise up as high as they can onto their thrones. But this king will come down from a place too glorious for human eyes to see. And the king of England and every other president and prime minister will drop down to the dirt and say, you are Lord to this one. We should be thinking carefully about that and making sure that we know him today, that we love him, and that we are counting the cost of being faithful to him. It was never meant to be an easy path, friends, but it's worth it. And lastly, we see the present and the soon coming kingdom. Look at verse 28. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom now as best as I can understand and as best as many scholars can understand this seems to be what Jesus is saying uh, this reality of seeing the son of man coming in his kingdom takes place for those who heard him in a partial way both before and after Jesus dies and in his rising and his ascending and in his sending of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. 
in the following chapter, if you look at chapter 17, which we'll get into, God's willing, next week, you see in the first section there's something that's entitled the Transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto the top of a mountain. And before their very eyes, with Moses and Elijah, he's having this discussion amongst the three of them. And Peter, James, and John, before their very eyes, see Jesus Christ transfigured, in a sense. Somehow changed into his heavenly glory. To the point where the, you know, the favorite spokesman, once again, Peter, speaks up and he says, Oh, it's really good that we're here. Let's just set up tents and stay here. Forget about going down. And the voice of the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. What a kind but strong word to Peter. Peter, listen to Him. In other words, trust in Him. Believe His words. Follow Him. He'll tell you what you need to do. Listen to Him. That was, in a sense, a glimpse into the glory of this coming kingdom. But then again, as I said, in the resurrection and in His ascension, when Jesus, before their very eyes, had begun to ascend until He was out of their sight. Imagine that, seeing a person go upwards to the sky until you can see them no more. Jesus did that. And in some mysterious way, disappeared in that same form. The angels say, in the same way that you saw him go up, you will see him come back. And then again, in the sending of the Holy Spirit, which extends to us today. Not only those disciples who walked with him, but those of us who by faith are now united to Jesus Christ and are part of the body of Christ with those disciples. We are part of this kingdom. Some who heard these words didn't taste death before they saw some of these things take place. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in that verse there. So in closing, I just want to again ask you to think carefully. Have you believed in this Messiah? It is easy in certain contexts for us to learn the facts of the Bible and even learn how to memorize scripture and repeat the truths that are in the Bible. But if you were mute and you couldn't respond with words and all we could do is watch your life, the question is pointed back at me. Would the answer be, yes, I believe in this Christ. Yes, I'm counting the cost and I'm carrying my cross and I'm trying my best to be faithful to Him. I believe He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe He is the eternal Son of God who died, who took on humanity to die, not just for sins generally, but I believe that my sins have been paid in full by Him. As that old hymn says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not a few of them, not in part, but the whole past, present, and future is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, it is well. It can only be well with our souls if we love Him, if we trust Him, and if we are following Him in the ways that He has instructed us to. Trust in Him today, if you haven't yet. Trust in Him now. And not only will you receive the forgiveness of your sin, but part of the promise of the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit will give you a new heart. See, the problem is our heart. We are entrapped by our sinful desires. And what we need, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, is to be born again, to be born from above, to become new creations, to have our hearts gripped by the love of God in such a way that the things that we like, the things we love, the things that delight us, start to be changed so that it's the things of God and the person of God Himself. What He's done in Christ and what He's doing that become our delight. From that kind of new heart comes a new life. And it's life eternal. Not a partial promise, but a promise that both extends into the quantity of time or the quantity of life, but also the quality of life now. We don't fear death. We receive whatever cross He gives us. And we follow Him. Let us pray. Father, we come before You once again in the name of Your Son. We are not worthy to approach You. No human being Not a single one of us that has ever lived is worthy of even speaking to you or of having you listen to us. But in your grace, you have been patient with us for so long. And you have not only been patient, but you have been a provider in sending your son to live and to die and to rise again on behalf of whosoever will believe in Him. May today be a day of salvation for someone. May today, for, for those of us who are born again already, be, may today be a day of increased resilience and, and, and zeal and commitment to the Lord, having been reminded of what He has done. Would you protect your people from false gospels, would you protect your sheep from those who would try to act as if having enough faith will remove trials and tribulations? Would you silence the mouths of false teachers in these islands and cause us to be a people who spend more time in your word and in prayer so that we don't respond as we often do? to the cross that you have given us to bear. And may we be reminded that Jesus has borne the ultimate cross. So that as he said, his, his burden is, is light, his yoke is easy. And we can come to him to find rest for our souls. May we strive all the more to be faithful, knowing that even as we strive, 
we're doing it from a position of rest, a position of peace with God. Nothing that we're doing will ever earn that, but because of what Jesus has done, we can have everlasting peace with you. Help us to look beyond the challenges of this life as well, to look to the the final coming of Christ and to be encouraged and challenged and, and, and convicted by that moment. We thank you that you are faithful and you have promised that you will not lose any of your sheep, even our persevering is done in your hands help us to share this good news with others that they too would believe or that fellow believers who are struggling would be strengthened in their souls so we ask now in Jesus name Amen Welcome to Truth Matters Cayman, a podcast by myself, James Pedley, the pastor of Boson Bay Presbyterian Church in West Bay, Grand Cayman, Cayman Islands. And as you tune into this podcast, you will mainly be hearing sermons which I record as I preach them on Sunday mornings for the Boson Bay congregation. I seek through my, my preaching to first and foremost shepherd the people of God there, that congregation. But I also hope that as these podcasts come to you, uh, both the sermons and eventually some discussions and other apologetic type uh, lessons that I seek to teach, that questions such as who is God and what is the true gospel and what is the church will be answered for you. So stay tuned.